How are you guys? Every day better. Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until that day. That's our life, man. Jesus, pray that we would know that you are good and you will always do what is good. I pray that we would be becoming the kind of people that recognize your goodness before the Red Sea parts because we simply know your character, because we look back upon our own past, how we see that you have taken what our enemy would want to use for evil and you have turned it for good to the saving of many lives. And we would use the faith that we can tangibly see in our past to know with certainty that you'll do what is good in our future. So we ask as we study your word that it would be good seed that goes into good hearts and produces 30, 60, 100-fold of fruit. We pray for your spirit to give us enlightened minds to hear clearly what you'd want to speak to your church this morning, this evening. And we ask this in your name. Amen. I really don't know what time it is anymore. Just a blur. I'm up like at three in the morning, like, what time is it? This is what I tell people. It's like sleeping and anyone that has had Shoulder surgery just knows this. It's like that eternal camping night. You know when you're kind of cold and you're not able to sleep and you keep waking up wondering how much time goes by. And so you look at your phone and it's been like five minutes. You're like, what in the world? How does this night last for eternity? Yeah, it's been the last four weeks for me. It's been like, Charity's been like, it's flying by. I'm like, no, it's not. Every night I'm like, oh man, it's gonna be a long one tonight. Uh, so there you have it. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You ever do something you don't want to do? Right? Shoulder surgery would be one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of us do. And if you're like the majority of people, it was ninth grade speech class. Right? How many people here hated high school speech class? Raise your hand. Okay. Studies show 95% of people hated high school speech class. Only 5% like it. And the 95% of us that hated it, we hated the 5% that liked it because they made it worse for us. They're like, pick me, pick me, I want to go. You're like, shut up. Yeah, right? I hated that. If you would have told me in the ninth grade, Matt, you are going to go up in front of a bunch of people and preach to them week in and week out, I would have rebuked you. Get thee behind me, Satan. There's no way I'm doing that. Paul, in chapter 11, has to do something he does not want to do. And he's fought it now, really, through potentially three other epistles he's written. But finally, in chapter 11, Paul just says, okay, that's it. I am going to give you my credentials. Normally, Paul doesn't do this kind of stuff. Chapter 11 is one of the most unique chapters in all of Paul's writings. It is a chapter where he just says, here is why I am the guy you should listen to. Here's the proof of my apostolic... No, I'm not even say that. Here's the proof that I'm a... Apostle, I'm going to give it to you right here. The reason Paul had been in Corinth for 18 months, spent more time at this church than any other church, wrote more to this church than any other church. He had poured his heart into this church. But he leaves, and some people he calls 
false apostles end up coming in behind him and they begin to corrupt and change what Paul had taught this church. So he is gonna expose them by comparing and contrasting, here's how I do things and here's how they do it. You want a good way to evaluate a pastor, a teacher, a person of God. Chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians is a pretty good one. So let's jump in. Let's see what Paul has to say. Chapter 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul says, bear with me, I'm being a fool. I get it, but I gotta throw down now. I've gotta demonstrate who's right and who's wrong. So the people at Corinth are beginning to wonder, who do we listen to? We had Paul for a long time. We have his epistles, but then we have these other guys that are undermining and changing what Paul has said. So who do we believe? Paul gives them two ways. Number one, what's their motive? He says this, you belong to Jesus. My job was simple. I'm to shepherd you to Jesus. That was my simple job. I'm to get you as a pure virgin to Jesus. What's Paul, what Paul is saying is this. When I came, it wasn't about me. I didn't have selfish motives for you guys. It wasn't about accumulating big, giant numbers. It wasn't about getting a pat on the back from you guys, a good job. It was, I simply had one goal, and that was to point you to Jesus Christ. He's the hero. And he says this. I was jealous. Is it okay for Paul to be jealous? There's two main kinds of jealousy. There's being jealous of something or someone, and then there's being jealous for someone. And they're way different. I'll try to illustrate it like this. So my wife and I, we got married January 15th of 2000. Why that day? Why that year? Because it makes the math really easy for me. People ask me, how long have you been married? 2023? 23 years, right? It's brilliantly easy. I sound like a superstar, right? So you might consider that. 2030 is coming for young people in here. It's a long ways off, but it makes math easy. So I see my wife and I see her and she's talking to some guy. And I get upset just because she's talking to some guy. No other reason. I'm just, ugh, that's bad jealousy. That's my insecurity. That's my unhealth. That's my neediness. That's my inadequacy. But if she's talking to somebody, and I know that guy, that he's wicked, that he's a predator, that he has busted up marriages, that he likes to seduce people, that he wants to destroy a relationship. And I feel this kind of protection welling up in me to protect my wife from him. That's a jealousy for her good. 
Not a jealousy of her, but a jealousy for her. I want her to thrive and to do well. That's what God has for you and me. It's why Paul calls it a divine jealousy. Paul says, I don't want you ripped off by wicked people. They're gonna steal and to kill and to destroy what God has for you. I want you to have the best. I'm jealous for you. And I can tell you this at Edgewater. I know the pastors pretty well. Staff and pastors at Edgewater, they're jealous for you. Not of you, for you. And if we felt like in conversations with any one of you that, you know what, a different church was the best place for you and your family, we'd have no problem saying, go there. 100%, that's where you're supposed to be. That's where you will thrive. That's where you will flourish because it's not about numbers. It's not about getting you to stay in a seat. That's not what it's about. We want what is best for you. That's jealous for you. I'm jealous for you. I want you to flourish. I want you to thrive. In fact, from time to time, on a Sunday, I will give messages that I just call space makers. They're real simple. They tackle an issue that's not popular, that's against the culture, that's against what people probably accept, and I give it for one simple reason. This is what we're about, this is truth, and if you don't like it, it's okay, because we're not about numbers. We're about pointing you as pastoral staff and presenting you as a pure virgin to Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about, and that's what we preach. And sometimes it's not always that way. So a bunch of years ago, Edgewater had been formed. We were about two and a half years old. Uh, Things blew up. We didn't expect it. I had always dreamed of a church of 250 people. Like, that was my dream. Know you, know your kids, go to soccer games, have my kids involved with your kids, right? God had a different plan. No problem. So I go to this pastor's thing, and we'd been doing it for a couple of years there, and Edgewater was doing its thing. And there was a little bit of a kind of uncomfortableness because of Edgewater and being new and all that kind of stuff. So it was coming up in this meeting. I said, here, here's what I think. I said, I know John chapter four, that the fields were white for a harvest in Grants Pass, that there were a bunch of people that had been watering and planting and fertilizing and working and doing all this stuff. And Edgewater just came in and we got the harvest. And we didn't do the work for it. And I understand that. I don't know why God's doing this, but in humility, I know I didn't do it. We didn't do it. God did something. We just got on for the ride. The harvest was here by a bunch of other people working really diligently in this community. And after I said that, one of the pastors in the group said, that's true because I got 182 of my people that are now going to your church. I went, what time is it? I got to go now. They're not my people. They're Jesus's people. And we want what's best for Jesus, for his glory, for his kingdom, and for your flourishing. And that's what Paul is saying right here. I'm jealous for you. I want the best for you. What's the motivation? Is it numbers? Is it power? Is it prestige? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, my motive was real simple. It was to get you pointed to Jesus Christ, period. These other guys, look out. Number two, the way to evaluate is their message. They changed three things that Paul had made very clear to this church. Jesus, the spirit, and the gospel. If there's three things you should never change in a church, it's Jesus, the Spirit, and the gospel, right? Jesus. Paul says they're preaching a different Jesus than I taught you. Galatians chapter one, Paul says this, even if an angel came, powerful, holy, brilliant angel, and they preached a different message for Jesus Christ, Let that angel be accursed. There's only one Jesus, and that's it. And Sunday, I mentioned the cults always change something about Jesus. They take away his divinity. They make him just a good teacher. They make him an angel. They make him a created being. They change Jesus. 
Matt, what does it matter? He's still our Savior. He still died for us. What does it matter? Here's why it matters. Because of what it does to God's character. If God simply created some being, angelic or otherwise, that then he forces to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world, what does that make God into? I'll illustrate it like this. Let's say tomorrow morning, we have a staff meeting, all staff is there. We're in our little pipe room there. We're all gathered around the table. We're talking about something really important. You've probably heard this illustration before. And someone throws a hand grenade through the window and it bounces right on the table. All staff is frozen with fear, except for me. I know exactly what to do to save all the people in that room. And so I respond and I jump up and I grab Justin Cabot. And I throw him on that bomb and I hold him there and he absorbs the blow with his body and it detonates inside of him. And then I look at all the staff members and say, look, I saved you. Look how much I love you. What would they say to me? You're a monster. If you loved us, you would have jumped on the grenade. That's what true love does. When Jesus is not God, which he is. When Jesus is not God, it turns God into a monster who creates someone to take the fall. The truth is, Jesus is the son incarnate, God in the flesh, come to take the penalty for my sin. That's true love. No greater love has a man for his friend then he laid down his life for him. That's what Jesus did for you and me. And they were changing Jesus. They were changing the spirit. Anyone here have questions on how the spirit works? Man, I do. The spirit is like the wind. There's a lot of questions. And so churches vary all over on the spirit, right? And sometimes they go way too far on the Pentecostal side. And the Bible says that we are to test the spirits. We're not just to accept, well, you know, if it happens in church, it must be right. No, we're to test it because we're gonna find out Satan appears like an angel of light. We're supposed to test it. But on the other side, sometimes the pendulum swings way over here. And it's like, you can never mention the spirit that their Trinity becomes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures that anything else gives us the heebie-jeebies. Now, they're supposed to be balanced. And we went through 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. And what 14 ends on talking about how the Spirit works, it says this, let all things be done decently and in order. So I just call us, it's in a classic term, I say we are charismatic with a seatbelt. And we believe God still works in the same ways that God has worked Throughout the Bible, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And those things are available for you and me today. But let all things be done decently and in order, right? So they were changing how the Spirit works, changing Jesus, changing the Spirit. And then it says they changed the gospel. I just say this. Any adjective in front of the gospel is false. Prosperity gospel, no, there's just the gospel. Social gospel, nope, there's just the gospel. Liberation gospel, nope, there's just the gospel. You don't change the gospel. And I think the big one today that I see in churches is what I call the practical gospel. Here's what I mean. When you look at some of the sermons that you see, the sermons sound like clickbait on the internet. Five ways to be successful five ways to have a better marriage, five keys to better parenting. Not that those things are necessarily bad, but that's not the gospel, right? It's like every one of us today has this culture in us where we're all these little personal remodeling projects. We're all trying to make ourselves a little bit better, right? 
Is that the gospel? That Jesus just wants to make us a little bit better? No. The gospel is Jesus wants to make you and me brand new. Not a little better, brand new. And it misses the fundamental of the gospel. What did Jesus come to save us from? I love that. <laughs> it's a little fear because I always try to ask questions that get people in trouble. I know that. Right? It's easy one to say, it's from our sins. Well, yes, but no. Psalm 19 says, man, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. See, the law, we had a means to salvation. If we just kept the 613 do's and don'ts of the Old Testament. If we just did that, we're converted. But Romans 7 says, we can't do it. So what did Jesus came, come to save us from? Ourselves. My inability to do it. See, if you read Romans chapter three, here's what it says. You don't need a remodel. You're a teardown. I'm a teardown. All are unrighteous. All, just read that. It's just this litany of charges against you and me. I'm like, true, 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 true. I don't need to be remodeled. I don't need a little tweak. I don't need a new a fix. I may tear down. I need to be made into a brand new human being. It's the only work, way it works. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And when you hear the gospel, when it is preached right, something in your soul resonates and you go, oh, that's good news. Oh, that's refreshing. It makes you in awe of God. It makes you love his grace and his mercy. That's the true gospel. When it's preached, your soul soars because you know it's true. I know this, if Jesus did nothing more for me than what he did on the cross, that's enough. That's the gospel. Don't change these three. So Paul's saying, you want to measure? Look at their motives. Are they in it for themselves? And look at their message. Are they clear on Jesus? Are they clear on the spirit? And are they clear on the gospel? Brilliant. Next, he's going to say this, verse seven. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them, them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, I was in need. I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of a chaos. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Paul says, here's another test. I preached for free. I preached for free. So yesterday I was studying this. And I went on these websites where you can book these big-time pastors. And so I just put in a request for, a, he's a big guy. I'm, I'm sure if I mentioned his name, you would recognize it. And just said, hey, I'd like to get him out to preach one Sunday here. Because I want to see what's his rider, right? What's the amount of money? What does it take to get somebody like that out here? So yet yeah, this morning I came in and there was an email from that place. And they said this, here's what it costs to get this guy to come and preach for one Sunday, $30,000 for first class tickets from his place to your place. A certain kind of German car, not a Volkswagen van, German, but not a Volkswagen. And a hotel with a lot of stars behind it. That's what's required. I'm like, whoa. And I thought, man, I'll do it for one first class ticket. My wife and kids can ride in coach, no problem. <laughs> I think Paul would be like, what? Paul says, I did it for free 50. 
I came there and I worked. And here's the nutty things about the church at Corinth. They were mad at Paul for that. They were mad that he didn't take money, that he didn't charge them. And here's the reason, it's fully cultural. So Corinth is a part of the Greek kind of culture 2,000 years ago. And there 2,000 years ago, if you were a really good philosopher, a really good teacher, you would have what was called a patron, a wealthy family, a wealthy person that would actually pay you to do your philosophizing or your teaching. If you weren't really good, you would have to take a second job besides philosophizing or teaching to kind of supply your needs. So if you know in Acts 18, when Paul goes to Corinth, he teaches, but he also joins up with a couple people named Priscilla and Aquila, and they start a little business, and the business is making tents. And Saul would work that job making tents so that he could pay himself, so that he could be able to philosophize and teach. And it actually made this group of people mad. <laughs> it was an embarrassment to them. Look, Paul's not great enough to have a patron that pays him. He has to work a job. So the false apostles pounce on this and are like, hey, he's no good. We'll take your money though. We'll get paid by you guys. Please pay us. In fact, right now, I think we should take a second offering. Let's take it up. It's nutty. So watch how Paul addresses this. It's verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ's. And here's a kicker. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Here's what Paul says. I'm gonna stay faithful. I can't stop and I won't stop. And then he says, kind of almost challenges them in verse 12 like this. He says, listen, stop paying them and see what happens. See if they stick around. See if they're just in it for the money. Stop paying them and see what happens. See if they keep teaching. See if they keep helping. See if they keep serving. Treat them just like me. And then Paul warns them, there's a danger in church. One of the greatest dangers the church faces is double agents, verse 15. They seem like they're on the team, but they're not. They're Judases. They seem like they're full of light. They seem to be saying good things, but they're not. And we would do well to take this warning because I think sometimes we believe we could spot the demonic or the satanic. We think it's gonna come with a red cape and horns and a pitchfork and an Aussie t-shirt biting the heads off a dachshund but it's not. It's going to come sounding like light. A good example is when Satan attacks Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Read it. It's reasonable. First attack is this. Jesus, if you're the son of God, why are you hungry right now, man? Because it had been 40 days since Jesus had eaten. If you belong to God, if you're his chosen one, why would he let you be hungry right now? What's happened? Where's God? You ever heard that in hard times? Where's God now? Why isn't God helping you? That's how Satan comes. Or the flip side of it is this. When you got hard times, here's what Satan loves to do. God's punishing you. You blew it. Now God is punishing you for your sinfulness. 
right? You ever heard that one as well? You ever believed that? You got a flat tire and you start kind of searching in your memory break. What did I do wrong? I must have done something. God's punishing me. You tell a lie and your training goes out. Oh man, I shouldn't have lied. You cheat on your taxes and your kid gets the flu. Oh, I should have cheated on my taxes. Now my kid's got the flu. Don't we all have that in us? A little bit of that, like God must be punishing me right now because things are hard. If that was true, and there's 8.2 billion people on earth, how busy would God be, right? Tire, 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 flu, 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 epidemic, trannies, I thought you're all dead. If you have believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, God doesn't punish you for your sin. The punishment that I deserved for my sinfulness, and I deserve plenty of it, Jesus took on the cross 2,000 years ago. It is a lie from the pit. It's a lie from the pit. Never forget that. That was attack number one. Seems reasonable, right? Attack number two was this. Satan quotes the Bible, Psalm 91. Do you know that Satan knows the Bible? And he is the ultimate twister of scripture. He quotes it, but he misquotes it, leaves that a little bit. That's what Satan does all the time. When I taught the students down in Mexico, I said, whenever a pastor just reads one verse, you open your Bible up to that verse, you read the preceding three or four verses, and then you read the post four or five verses because context is king. And it is very easy to wrestle scriptures out of their context unless you read them in their context. I said, do it to me. Do it to every single person that only reads one little fragment, one part of the verse, because it's one of Satan's real, real key tactics. Sounds like light, because he's quoting the Bible. But he's twisting it and perverting it. And the third attack was this is what Jesus said, or this is what Satan said to Jesus. Took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of earth, and said to Jesus, if you will bow down, I'll give you all the kingdoms of earth. Now that's a mind blower. Because who owns all the kingdoms of earth? Why is Satan saying, I'll give them to you? Why didn't Jesus say, hey, no time out, I already own them? Because when Adam fell in Genesis chapter three. He forfeited dominion of earth to Satan. That's why when you read Revelation chapter five and there is this scroll and the scroll has writing on the inside and outside and there's this cry from heaven, who is worthy to loose the seals and open the scroll? And there was no answer. And it says, John started to weep and to cry. You know why? Because that scroll is a title to something. You read the Old Testament, when someone sold land, what would happen is the land would be described on the inside of the scroll, then it would be rolled up, and then the terms of redemption would be written on the outside of the scroll if you wanted to buy that land back in seven years. And then it would seal. It was titled deed to earth. And John is weeping. No one's worthy to reclaim earth. But then there's a majestic cry because he sees a lamb having just been slain and he is worthy to loose the seals that Jesus can redeem the earth. But right now, 1 John chapter five, the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Here's what Satan was saying to Jesus. I got a shortcut for you. If you bow down to me right now, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go through all that. I'll give you it right now. I don't think there'd be a more tempting offer than that offer right now. All the death, 
is done. All the rapes stop. All the pain ceases. All the neglect of children is done. All the gossip, all the slander, all the molesting, everything that is evil ends today if you'll worship me. I can't imagine a greater temptation than that for Jesus. Here's a shortcut. But what does Jesus say? He rebukes Satan and says, be gone. I'm going to the cross. I'm doing it the right way. Listen, the Christian walk is not easy. Satan will try to tell you it's easy. It's not. The moment you believe, you start swimming upstream against culture, against the world, against the flesh, and against the enemy. It's an uphill battle. It's not easy but hard is not bad. And it does something to us. We exercise ourselves for godliness. It creates in us the metal that will be rewarded through all eternity. There's no shortcut, right? Stay faithful. Beware of the enemy that wants to come as an angel of light and get us distracted and heading the wrong direction. So Paul gives a warning right here. Faithful people, faithful people, discern the lies, the deceit of the enemy. And then lastly, well, not lastly yet, but verse 16, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What am I saying with this boastful confidence? I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we were too weak for now, it's a, I just call this the contest of fools. You ever had a contest of fools? I grew up on a dirt road with gravel. And as kids, we had a contest of fools. This was the game we played. We'd each grab the biggest hand of gravel we could. We would stand eye to eye and then with our handful of rocks, and then we'd throw a rock up in the air and you had to keep your eyes directly on the other person. You could not look away or you lost and they got to throw all their rocks at you and you would wait and see if that rock came down and hit someone on their head. And we would play that until someone looked away or someone went to the hospital. It was a contest of fools. Paul's saying, I'm going to do a contest of fools right now. Let's compare resumes. Verse 20 is their resume. Read it again. It's a ridiculous resume. You bear with them. They make slaves of you. They devour you. They take advantage of you. They put on airs or they get all puffy with you. They strike you in the face. That's their resume. It's terrible. There are terrible pastors that do terrible things, verse 20. Right now, we support a church, you guys do, called New Song Chapel in Nairobi, Kenya. And pastor Douglas over there has been talking to us about a pastor that went nuts. And he was in trouble, so he actually took his congregation and kind of moved them out to this remote area. And then he started asking his congregation, he says, at like 15 at a time, I want you 15, I want you to pray and fast for Jesus. And they did until they died, and then he buried them. And then another 15, I want you to pray and fast for Jesus. And they did, and they're unearthing body after body after body. They're terrible pastors. Remember, watch a 2020 with John Stossel, where there was this prosperity preacher who had everything in the world, jets and mansions and you name it, man, he's got it all. Rolls Royces, the whole thing. And John Sassel somehow found this widow pensioner that lived in a single wide and took public transportation. 
And she had been giving to that church for years. And so John Stossel interviewed her and said, look at all this stuff that this guy has. How does that make you feel? Living in your single wide, with no transportation, as a pensioner. And what she said was, I'm so glad he has that. He deserves it. It's like these people right here. I'm so glad they struck me in the face. I'm so glad they took advantage of me. I'm so glad they devoured me. That's their resume. So Paul says this, here's my resume. But when anyone else dares to boast, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's what the Romans would do. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? Here's my resume. Here's the proof. We're the same pedigree, right? Israelites, Hebrews, sons of Abraham. But while they're in mansions, eating caviar and drinking champagne, Here's what's happened to me. I've been beaten with whips five times, 39 lashes. Some people died from that right there five times. Three times with rods from the Romans, stoned. This is people picking up softball, cantaloupe-sized rocks, hurling them as hard as they can to break bones and ribs and skulls and fingers and toes. You ever been hit hard by something before? You ever been? I don't know if I have, but I hit somebody one time. I was golfing, 18 years old, first time I'd golfed. Illinois Valley, there's a couple of kind of the fairways that they kind of run side by side. You, you go out this way and then you come back the opposite direction. So we had gone already on one and we're coming back and we're teeing off while this guy was over there chipping up onto the green. And when you're 18, in fact, still this day, I had one desire when it comes to golf, hit the ball as hard as I could. I didn't really care where it went. I just want to hit it hard. So I just you know, happy Gilmore style. Let's hit this ball as hard as I could. And it went straight, but not straight the way I wanted it. It went straight for that guy that was chipping. I didn't know what to do, but my buddy's a golfer. So he's like, four. So the guy sees the golf ball heading for him. And instead of just stepping out of the way and it would have gone right by him, he decides he's going to jump. So he jumps in the air. The ball hits a little mound, skips up and nails him right in the hip. He fell on the ground screaming. And then my buddy said, you got to go get your ball back. I said, no, I do not. It's a gift. I give it to him and I teed off and got out of there. That's just a golf ball. Softballs, cantaloupes, crushing. Three times he's shipwrecked. You know what that means? Do not sail with Paul. Like, bro has some bad, bad experiences. Verse 26 is just classic to me. 
in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Everywhere and everyone, I was in danger all the time. Few people have a resume for Jesus like the apostle Paul. This is the most detail we get of what Paul went through because of his love for Jesus and for the church. And what we know from history is about 10 years after he writes this letter, Caesar Nero will finally capture him, convict him, have him taken outside of Rome on the Appian Way and cut off his head. When you know this about Paul, it gives extreme weight to when Paul says in Romans chapter five, I glory in hardship because tribulations produce patience and patience produces experience and experience produces hope and hope makes me never ashamed because the love of God is spread abroad. And that's brilliant. It gives real weight to Paul when he says, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. These light afflictions are but for a moment, but they're working for me an eternal weight of glory. What are Paul's light afflictions? We just read them. What are my light afflictions? A nasty email. His light afflictions, I was beat with rods, stoned, whipped 39 times, shipwrecked, out to sea for a day and a night, thinking I'm gonna die. That's his lot of fictions, like unbelievable. Who would you rather have pastoring you? The verse 20 dudes taking advantage of you, slapping you in the face, using you? Or this guy that gives himself daily because of his love for you? There's no comparison. And then Paul ends by saying this, and if I must boast, I will boast of these things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. He has his about face. This is a setup for chapter 12, which is brilliant. And I don't want to rob the next guy. But Paul is bragging about an event. You can read about it in Acts chapter nine. Paul gets saved, Acts chapter nine. He is on fire. He knows the Old Testament. He has memorized the first five books of the Bible. He's like, I'm going to Damascus and there's going to be a giant revival. I'm going to convince them of Jesus Christ. I've seen him face to face. It's going to go brilliantly. He goes and he starts to preach the gospel. And no one believes. They all get mad at him. They actually want to kill him. They locked a city up in order to trap him. And he has to be let out in a basket through a window and escape. And Paul says, that was the most important event in my life. Why? Well, I think if we know history right, he goes from there and he ends up in the desert of Arabia and the book of Galatians says, in Arabia for two and a half years, he is taught personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. That his greatest letdown becomes his greatest teaching moment. And Paul says, that's it. That when I'm weak, I'm strong. It's because of what it produced. That God is much more concerned with my character than my comfort. And will I trust him? And Paul says it was the most uncomfortable, biggest disappointment in my life that actually led to the greatest work God has ever done for me. It reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah who complains how hard life was. It's Jeremiah chapter 12. God, it's too hard, I can't do it. This is what God says to Jeremiah. If running with men has wearied you, What's going to happen 
when you run with horses. I love that. Jeremiah, I've got such great plans for you. You're not gonna run against people. I want you to do something that no one's ever done before. You ever tried to outrun a horse? Anyone here? I had horses. It does not work. They're faster. What God was saying is, Jeremiah, trust me, this difficulty, this hardship, it's working in you the kind of metal that will transform you from an ordinary person to like Paul, supernatural. The only question is, do we trust God in those times? When we're weary, do we trust God in those times? I do. From Paul's testimony and from my own life, I trust him. And now I say, okay, Lord, I wanna run with horses. Help me not to grow weary. Strengthen me. Make this disappointment become one of the greatest lessons in my life. And Jesus is able to do that for us. So Jesus today, I mean, the testimony of our brother Paul be an incredible encouragement for each one of us. You can take our greatest disappointments, our letdowns, and convert them into grand lessons where we learn and grow and run with horses. And so I pray for any who have come into this sanctuary tonight who are weary feel like the enemy is winning and they're losing we're struggling with health struggling with difficulty struggling in marriages, struggling as parents, struggling at work, struggling, I pray today that the Apostle Paul's testimony by the power of your spirit would give them hope. That they could glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations work patience and patience works experience and experience works hope so that we're never ashamed. That we would trust that you're equipping us to run with horses. And I pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.